Most parents have had the experience of realizing their kids aren't where they're supposed to be. Now, some of us have had our kids get lost in a store. Others may have had them get out of their sight at a park. You may have even come home to find your child isn't in a house where they're supposed to be. These are some of the most fearful times that I've ever experienced. And if you've ever experienced this, then you know how quickly that panic sets in. You know how badly you want to find your lost child. And if they aren't found quickly, we enlist others to help us in our search. I mean, I know that if one of my daughters was lost, I would do whatever was necessary to find them. I would get as many people as I could to to help me to look and I would stay at it until they were found. And I'm sure you would do the same thing. Now, there are a lot of reasons that we become afraid when our kids aren't where they're supposed to be. I mean, we're afraid for their safety. We know the potential dangers of the world that we lived in. We, we've seen movies or we've heard stories or we've watched Criminal Minds and we know some of the awful things that can happen to missing kids. We love them and we're afraid of what might happen to them. And in these times, the things that we want most is for them to be found. In light of how we feel when our children are lost physically, how do you think God feels when people are lost spiritually? God's love for us, it far exceeds our love for our children. God also knows the devastation that sin brings into the lives of people who live in it. God knows the hurt that they will feel, the pain that they will endure, the the ways that sin will ruin their lives. But most importantly, God knows the eternal consequences for those who live and die lost. God knows... That no one has to suffer this fate because he has made a way of salvation through faith in Jesus. And this is why the lost must be found. This is why God wants the lost to be found. And as followers of Jesus, you and I play an essential role in God's plan for the lost being found. We must be active and faithful in trying to bring the lost to Jesus. But before we will be active... And seeking to bring the lost to Jesus, we have to be convinced the power of the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We must believe that Jesus alone saves. And we must believe that Jesus has a a very real desire to save those who are lost and to restore those who have wandered away. Today we're going to look at a story that reaffirms to us Jesus' desire to save the lost and to restore the backslider. Open your Bible to Luke 15, verse 11 is where we're going to start. When you find that, I'm going to ask you, it's on page 798 in the Pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. 
And not many days after, the younger son gathered together, gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The title of the message is The Lost Son. Let's pray. I love you, Lord. I am thankful for your compassion, for your mercy, for your desire to save the lost and restore the backslider. I'm thankful that in heaven the angels rejoice when one lost person is found. I'm thankful that you rejoice when a wandering child comes home. Thankful that your mercies are made new every day. And thankful that you are so good and so gracious and so kind. Father, today we need you to speak to us from your word. Lord, a passage like this that we've read and heard so many times can become so familiar that we lose the impact that it means it's meant to have upon our lives. God, this passage is so precious and it's so powerful. Don't let that happen today. Don't let us coast through in neutral with our minds because we know the passage and the story. Don't let us be thinking about what comes after. Let our hearts and our minds be fully focused upon you in this time. Father, your word does not return void. 
It always accomplishes that for which you've sent it. So, Father, today, let your Holy Spirit come and take your word. And let it accomplish its purpose in our hearts and in our minds. If we're here and we're the prodigal God, let this passage turn our hearts to home. If we're here and we're not the prodigal, let this passage prevent us from becoming the self-righteous older brother. Let this passage give us your heart for the lost and the wayward. Let's care. Let's see people. See the world the way that you do. Father, break our hearts over the fact that people around us are going to die and go to hell without Jesus. Let us not get away from that truth. Let us not be able to put it out of our minds and let our hearts not be numb to the ache that should be there because of that. Father, send your Holy Spirit to come and let him take your word today and and use it in a mighty way in all of our lives to change us and to make us be who you want us to be, Lord. Let your word be like a hammer that would break down strongholds that, that we have erected so that our every thought could be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let your word be like a sword that would convict us deeply and bring us to a place of genuine repentance. Let your word be like a light that would dispel the darkness in our minds and show us Jesus very clearly. Let your word be like a fire to burn away the junk and the dross from our lives that we could be pure vessels for Jesus, sanctified and useful by our Master. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. and Let me say what you want said, nothing more, nothing less. Don't let me in any way be a hindrance to what you want to accomplish in our lives. Father, when we have our time of response, let there be liberty for people to respond in whatever ways they need to respond. Save the lost. Restore the backslider. Encourage the discouraged. Strengthen the weak. Help us to progress in sanctification so that we can be more like Jesus. Let what happens in here today make a difference in who we are and how we are. Let us go out different and live different because of what you're doing in us and through us and for us. We love you, Jesus. We ask all of this in your precious, wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. This story is likely very familiar to most of us. It shows us the, the love of our Heavenly Father that He has for His children. The story is a part of a larger set of parables that run throughout this chapter. Jesus told the story because the tax collectors were angry, or the, the, the scribes and Pharisees were angry that Jesus was hanging out with sinners and with tax collectors and even 
eating with them. Now, we, we don't think much about the idea that he was eating with them, but in their day, the idea of eating with someone, it conveyed acceptance. See, Jesus wasn't just tolerating them and he wasn't just enduring them. He was accepting them. And he wasn't accepting their sinful way of life, but he did accept them as people who were made in the image of God and in desperate need of a Savior. To confront the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus told three stories. And really, I guess you could say he told one story in three different ways. In all three stories, something valuable was lost. In all three stories, what was valuable was eventually found. And in all three stories, there was great rejoicing over what was lost being found. And while the stories are essentially the same, there are some differences in each one, particularly in the story that we're looking at today. The first two stories, they they deal specifically with just the lost and God's desire to see them saved. But the third, it's a bit more pointed and would have been a bit more challenging to the scribes and to the Pharisees as it deals with a rebellious and an ungrateful son. In the first two stories, Jesus, he mentioned sinners. Well, a sinner could be anything. A sinner could be a Gentile who did not know the one true God. A sinner could be a Jewish person who was raised by an unfaithful Jewish person and was never really brought up to understand life in a covenant with God as he was meant to. But a prodigal son is very different from both of these. My take on this passage is that the dad were meant to see him as a godly man. I think we're meant to understand that he he raised his children to love God and to serve God and to follow the law. From what we see in the latter parts of the story, I think we're meant to understand that he loved his family. He was a good dad who loved his kids and wanted what was best for them. And that's what makes this son's rebellion so bad. But in verse 12, the the son asks, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, according to Jewish law, There was a a portion of the dad's estate that would go to him when the father died. The Jewish law, it specified how much would go to the older brother and then how much would go to the younger brother. But the law specified that this happened after the dad died. So when the son asked for the portion of goods that fell to him, he was essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have your stuff. I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? I mean, that's extraordinarily selfish. I mean, he's all about the father giving him the stuff. But he really doesn't want anything to do with having a relationship with his father. Now, in any culture, this would be bad. But it was especially bad in the Jewish culture with its emphasis on family and on family loyalty and on the respect given to parents. And I'm sure that the religious leaders at this point, they they expected that the dad would begin to square his kid away, right? That he would take him to the woodshed, so to speak, and he would give him an attitude adjustment. But the father instead, he does the unthinkable. It says, so he divided to them his livelihood. He, He gave in to the son's request. Figured up how much 
all that he owned was worth. I guess he sold whatever was necessary to get the portion that would have fallen to the kid and then gave it to him. Then the kid doesn't waste any time. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country where he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Kid doesn't waste any time getting out of Dodge. He does all that he can to put distance between his dad and his family and all that he had ever known. And once he's a good distance away, where maybe no one knows who he is and no one can expect anything out of him, he begins to waste all that his dad had given him with what the New King James says, prodigal living. The King James says riotous living, and the New Living says wild living. Essentially, the kid begins to party. He gives himself over to wicked self-indulgence. And at this point, he has not only left his father and his homeland, but he has left the values and the morals that his father has tried to raise him to have. He has left all moral restraint back on his dad's farm. Instead of living by the law of God, he is now living by the law of what feels good, and I'm going to do it. He's abandoned all that his dad taught him. He's abandoned the example that his dad set, and he's just going to do whatever it is that he wants to do. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that at this point, the kid was having the time of his life. That scripture says there is pleasure in sin for a season. And so I would imagine that this time of his life was all that he imagined it would be. He had all the money he could want. He had all the freedom he could want. And he had none of the restrictions that came with being a part of his dad's Household. So he lived to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, and he had a great time doing it. But he learned that the pleasure of sin, it is just for a season. It says in verse 14 that when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. The thing about money is that you just if you don't have an endless supply of it, and if you aren't doing something to add to it, and if you continually spend it, you eventually run out of it. And at some point, his, his riotous living and his living for sensual pleasures, it emptied his bank account. And that was a bad day. But his bad day got worse because not only did he spend all, there arose a severe famine in the land. So not only did he now not have money, but now everybody was kind of tight on a budget. And there wasn't a lot of money for riotous living to be found among anybody. And so he, he didn't have enough. The people didn't have enough. And there was no one to help. And so he began to be in want. He didn't have enough to provide for his basic needs. At this point, he's not looking for the next big party. He's looking for his next meal. He's looking for a place to stay. He's looking for clothes to wear. But eventually, he finds somewhere to work. And he joins himself in verse 15 to a citizen of the country. He finds someone that will give him a job. Thankfully, and he sends him into his fields to feed swine. 
The only job he could get was swapping hogs. Now, I think it's hard for us to connect with how bad that really was. We live in a community that celebrates panhandle pork days. We, we like bacon. We have pig farms around us and a large pig processing plant near us. And so we, we don't see, I mean, granted, slopping hogs isn't the best job, but it's not that bad, right? It would be if you were a, a Jewish guy. For a Jewish man, this was the worst possible job there could possibly be. This was a degrading job. This was a, a violating job. This went against everything he probably held in his heart to be true. This would have been a shameful and a disgraceful way for a Jewish man to make a living. But as bad as that was, it got even worse. Verse 16, it said he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. Now, I don't know if you've ever slopped hogs or not. I've done it a few times when I was in the FFA. And I'm going to say that what you feed the hogs is anything but appetizing. The smell alone is kind of bad, much less the look of it. Personally, I can't imagine looking at that and thinking, I'm so hungry, I would eat a spoonful of that if someone would give it to me. But that's where he was. He would have eaten the hog slop if they would have given him some, but it gets worse. No one would give him even that. You've heard of someone hitting rock bottom. Well, that's where he finds himself at. Pretty much he's gone down as far as he can possibly go in his life. You've heard the cliche that sin... It takes you further than you wanted to go. It keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. And it costs you more than you were willing to spend. That's what he's currently living and experiencing in his life right now. I mean, do you think that when he left his dad's house with a pocket full of cash, dreams of riotous living, he imagined that in not many days hence, he would be hungry for hog slop. I don't. I think this kid's world has collapsed around him. Everything he imagined was gone. The pleasure was gone. His friends were gone. His hope was gone. At this point, he had lost everything. And at this point, in his mind, he really didn't even have a family because he had told his dad he wanted what his dad would give him after he died. He had abandoned and lost it all. But in verse 17, he, he has a realization. It says he came to himself. He had an epiphany. In his misery, he had a moment of clarity and he realized how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair and I perish with hunger. Dad's house wasn't so bad after all. There was 
better there than it is now. And at this point, the kid has a a choice to make, really. He He can let his pride keep him where he is. He can say, you know, I'm not going to go back and admit to Dad I blew it. I'm not going to go back and face my friends and tell them that this didn't work out like it could have and like I think it should have. He could have replied in really shame and just said, I can't. There's just no way Dad would ever accept me back. This is what I deserve. This is who I am. This this is the best it will ever be. Or he could have humbled himself and he could take a risk and go back to his dad to see if maybe, just maybe, dad will give him another chance. He says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no worthy, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I think humility is the hardest choice of all, don't you? Admitting you're wrong is hard. It's easier to let pride keep you in your mistakes than it is to admit you're wrong. It's even easier to let shame and hopelessness keep you where you are than to admit you're wrong and face the people you may have wronged. And the kid, though he chooses the harder option, he goes back to his dad, but he's not the same guy. He's not the same kid that said, Dad, give me the stuff that's supposed to be mine. He's not the same kid that went off and said, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do now. He's going back. He's been broken. He's been humbled. He's not even going back to ask his dad to make him a son. Dad, if you'll just hire me on, I'll work for you. I sinned. I mean, there's no excuses. He didn't start blaming his older brother. You know, Dad, you you held us to too high of a standard. My brother was too mean. You expected too much. He was just throwing himself at his dad's mercy. I sinned against heaven and against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Will you just hire me and I'll, I'll live in the servant's quarters and I'll work and I'll do my job and I'll just do what you want me to do. Determined. That's what he's going to do. He heads back. And verse 20 may be one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. And when he arose, came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. I don't know all that went into his father seeing him, but I'm going to tell you what I what I imagine with this. I imagine the father never gave up that his son would come home. I imagine that every day the father looked down the road where the kid left and longingly looked to see if maybe he would come back today. Today would be the day that his son would come home. And I I don't know how many days the kid was gone and how long it was, but I believe that what we see here is the father never gave up hope. He never Gave up hope that his son would someday, one day, return. And this was the day he was coming home. The father sees him. Now the dad, the dad has some options about how to respond to. The dad can respond in, in pride himself. 
He can sit there and wait and say, so. How was it all? Was that all you expected? How'd that work out for you? He could have responded with, with harshness and unforgiveness. No, I'm not taking you back. You, you've had your stuff. Go. Do what you want to do. You're no longer a part of this family. But the dad doesn't. The dad is filled with compassion, it says. And he, he runs to his son. Now, the running is significant also. And it's something we don't connect with in our culture. It was considered undignified for a Jewish man to run. And I don't know for sure why. Um, my guess is, you know, they kind of wore togas then. They all wore these big flowy robes. And, and the robes were basically like dresses. And so I would imagine it would be hard to run in. Right? And so the only way I can see that they would run would be if they would hike them up and expose their thighs and their legs to run. And in Isaiah, that was considered a shameful thing. Isaiah mentioned that. So my guess it was connected to that. For the father to run, he would have to hike up his robe and he would have to bare his thighs to in order to run. But the father really doesn't care what other people think. He really doesn't care about social norms and he really doesn't care about what others expect or hold him to. His son is coming home and he and he runs to his son and he and my Bible says he fell on his neck. And given the way the son is responding, I don't doubt that the son just fell on his face before his dad. That was pretty common. And if that's the case, then when it says the father fell on his neck. It means that the father got down in the dirt with him. He got down where his son was. He wasn't lording over him. He was where the kid was. And he hugged him and he kissed him. And so the son, he makes his plea. I've sinned. And I don't deserve to be called your son. And he's about to get to the whole make me a a servant thing. And the dad interrupts him. Verse 22 Bring out the best robe. Now, I have circled the word best in my Bible. And put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now, I don't know about the, the sandals. But the best robe, that would have been expensive. The ring almost certainly was a family signet ring that, that the father and the sons alone would have had. The sandals, I, I don't know. Um, But I do know that what we see is the father restoring the kid to sonship. He's not receiving him as a servant. He's not receiving him as a second class citizen. He is being restored fully to the position he had before he left. Whatever the son was before he left, he is that all over again. The father, he holds no grudges. He bears no ill will. He doesn't seek to demean or degrade the kid. He doesn't try to put him in his place. He just forgives him and he fully restores him. And then he says, similar to what we saw with the other stories of the lost things, bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was, and there's the phrase, he was lost and is found. And he began to be merry. Now, I'm going to stop here because we're going to talk about the older brother next week. The father throws this huge party 
He's rejoicing that his son has come home. And as I studied this week, the main thought, a simple thought is this. Is that Jesus will save the lost. And he will restore the backslider. I mean, this is. This is the story of the Bible. I mean, that's what God always does. God is always willing to save the lost. He is always willing to restore the backslider. And this is, I think it's powerful for us in two levels. Right? If you're here today and you're lost, you're, you're not where you're supposed to be. But Jesus will save you. If you're here today and you had at one point had a relationship with Jesus, but you've strayed. Understand, Jesus will restore you. If you're here today and you're a believer who's not strayed, Jesus wants the lost found. And Jesus wants the backslider restored. And, and really, those are the, the, the next two points. Jesus wants the lost found. I mean, as we look at these two, these two stories, we see the heart. The heartbeat of God. The heartbeat of Jesus. Jesus wants the lost found. There is no person we will ever encounter that is not important to Jesus. There is no lost person who has sinned so much that Jesus will not and cannot save them. He wants them found. And it's not a, again, it's not a begrudging thing. If, if they, if the worst person you can imagine comes to Jesus and confesses their sin, he's not up in heaven going, ah, he figured it out. There is rejoicing. In heaven, over one sinner who repents. Man, that's a good thing. God wants the lost found. If you're a believer, God wants you to be a part of the lost being found. Now, if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then understand you're lost. But that's not a a, a terrible word. Lost means you're not where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be in a relationship with Jesus, but you're not. And Jesus wants you found. He wants you where you're supposed to be. He wants you to be in that relationship with him. And Jesus, he wants this for everybody. Right? So we talked about that last week, so I won't spend a lot of time. But I do want to drive home the point that we would be sure to understand that Jesus wants the lost found. Secondly, Jesus wants the backslider restored. Jesus wants the backslider restored. This story, it it paints a good picture, I think, of someone who has saved part of the church and who strays away. And what happens if they decide to come back? You know, some people, they get saved and they are, they are rock steady forever. I mean, they don't stray. They don't, not that they're perfect, but they are just solid and committed. Always. But there are other people who get saved and they believe. But for whatever reason, they begin to drift in their relationship with Jesus. And, and people drift in a variety of ways. 
Uh, some people drift and just begin to neglect their relationship with Jesus. They just don't take any active thought of it. They don't cultivate it. It's not that they're going headlong into sin and they're not living in prodigal living. They're just not seeking Jesus. They're not active with Jesus. They're not serving Jesus. They're, they're not anything with Jesus. And there are some that do get saved. And for whatever reason, they, they drift and they do go headlong into sin. And I think one of the easiest things for us to do is to think that people that have done that, that they've, they shouldn't get to come back. Right? I mean, they, they've blown it. They, they've made us all look bad. They, they've made it harder to reach the lost. They have hurt people. They've done that. And all of that is likely true. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus, he wants the backslider restored. He died for them and he he works in an effort to bring them back to the place where they are supposed to be. Jesus absolutely wants the backslider restored. And when he when they come back, when the backslider comes back, they don't come back as second class citizens. Not the backslider that's restored. They don't sit in the back and can't come in here with the rest of us. They, they don't get to not take part in communion because they're not as good because they have to prove themselves. When God restored, when the father restored the boy, he was fully restored just like that. When the backslider comes back, they're back. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. There are sons and daughters and then there are people that aren't a part of the kingdom. But that's all there is. So when the backslider comes back, God forgives them. Jesus restores them. They are all the way back in. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot give up on people. We cannot give up on those who stray. We cannot give up on those who walk away. We have to seek them. We have to care for them. We have to love them. And when they come back, we have to receive them. It's what we have to do. It's what we're supposed to do. Now, I want to give you some things to do in light of what we've talked about today. Particularly as we're moving toward Easter. First, I, I want you to think of someone you care for who fits in these categories. Do you know a lost person? Do you know a, a backslider? Uh, it can be anyone. I, I think primarily someone you, you already have a relationship with. But be specific. Don't think of lost people, backsliders. Specific people you know that fit into these categories. Right? Get their name and their face in your mind. And then pray daily for God to save them. Right? We're going to have a time of invitation in a minute. Use that time to pray for God to save them. Pray that God would do what it takes to bring them to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you how I pray when I pray this way. When I pray specifically, I do pray for God to do what it takes. I do pray for Him to turn their hearts toward Jesus. I pray for Him to make them see their need. 
But before the lost son came home, he had to hit rock bottom. And there are some people that as long as they have strengthened themselves and as long as we're making it accessible for them to not need God, they won't turn back to Jesus. And the reality is, if we want to see someone eternally saved, we may have to let them suffer here. We may have to let them hit rock bottom to the place where there is no one and nothing else that can help except for Jesus. Pray for God to do whatever it takes to turn their hearts toward Him. And if that means that they hit rock bottom, then so be it. Their souls, their eternal souls, are worth far more than their temporary comfort. What they lose now that brings them to rock bottom is nothing compared to losing their soul and going to hell for all of eternity. As we pray for God to save them, value their souls, their eternal souls, over their temporary safety and their temporary comfort. Look for ways to minister to them. I mean, what can, what can we do to these people to show them Jesus? How can we show them in practical ways that Jesus loves them? What can we do to serve Jesus by serving them? I mean, this requires us to, to pay attention, to, to see their lives, to see what's going on, to listen to how they speak, to think about how they feel, to be willing to get involved. But, but we're all meant to be ministers. We're all meant to serve Jesus by serving others. And as we serve others... I mean, even as we serve them, we show them that Jesus cares about them. They will see Jesus through us. They will see His love through us. I mean, the church is called the body of Christ. We are His hands and His feet. Which means we have to, to do praying. Listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm never going to say don't pray. But praying always has to give way to doing. There has to find, we have to look for ways that we can help them, that we can show them that Jesus cares. Tell them about Jesus. It's easy for us to assume that everybody in our culture knows about Jesus. But that would be a wrong assumption. We encounter people every day that they may know the name of Jesus, but they know nothing about Jesus. There's a book called They Love Jesus But Not the Church. And it's about the fact that the culture, a lot of times the culture at large, they love Jesus. But the reality is it's not the Jesus of the Bible. They love a Jesus that just says love one another. They love a Jesus that says judge not. They love a Jesus that just is okay with everything. But the reality is that's not Jesus. Yeah, Jesus said judge not, but Jesus also said that we're to discern. Right? We're to discern between good and bad. We're to discern between sin and not sin, between the fruit of a person's life. Jesus, He did say to love one another. But He also told a woman to go and sin no more, didn't He? I mean, Jesus, He doesn't just say, be happy. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Me. But our culture, they, they may have an idea of what Jesus is like, but that doesn't mean it's the real Jesus. 
more and more. The people around us have no biblical concept of Jesus. And they won't know Jesus unless someone tells them about Jesus. And you and I, we are God's plan to be that someone. So tell them about Jesus. Tell them. Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them what Jesus did. But a part of telling them about Jesus is tell them who Jesus is to you. Tell them what Jesus has done in you and through you and for you. What difference has Jesus made in your life? And don't underestimate the value of testifying about what Jesus is to you and what he has done for you. There's power in that. That's telling them about Jesus. So tell them about Jesus and then invite them to church. Let me, let me ask you a question. Does what we do here, is it meaningful to you? Does it help you? Does it make a difference in your life? Does it encourage you? Does not Does it do anything positive for you? If it does, invite someone else to experience that as well. I mean, if what we do here matters to you, maybe it'll matter to them. If what we do here helps you, maybe it will help them. Right? And, and don't invite them out of a sense of guilt. Right? Don't try to guilt them into coming. Do it in a sense of, man, it really helps me. If it does. Now, if it doesn't, I, I don't know. But if all of this, what we do, if it in any way helps you, encourages you, strengthens you, or matters to you, then it may well matter and help and strengthen and encourage someone else. Right? We're, we're not inviting them for indoctrination. You're, you're doing a good thing, right? This is helpful to me. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. Don't we do that with other stuff? I enjoyed this movie. You should watch it. When my knee hurt, this is what I did. Well, when I wanted to lose weight, this is how I did it. Here's a book that I got something out of. You might enjoy it as well. Now, we don't think we're oppressing people or being mean or hurting them when we do that sort of stuff. If our motivation is, this has been good for me, it, maybe it'll be good for you too. Man, that's a positive thing. We're doing a good thing. Telling them about Jesus, that's a good thing. He is the best good news there is. Listen, we are not trying to hurt or hinder or make anyone feel bad. If someone comes to know Jesus, that will change them eternally. I mean, that will make an eternal difference in their lives. And we don't know the extent of how far that can go. And I'm out of time, but let me... I read a, reading a book, and the guy said this. He said, can Jesus change a life? Undoubtedly. Well, if he can change one life, then he could change another. If he could change the husband, then he could change the wife. And if he could change the husband and the wife, then he can change the kids. And there Jesus has changed the family. 
And if Jesus can change one family, then He can change another family. And if He can change another family, then He can change a community. And if He can change a community, He can change a country. Right? I mean, what Jesus has done for one, He can do for all. We don't know the extent of what Jesus will do in that one person that we bring. I've mentioned this before, but with my family, my Granny Doolin was the first person in my mom's family to really know Jesus. Before Granny Doolin, they were not good people. After Granny Doolin, they're largely Christians. Not, of course, not everybody, not all. But the difference in my family, if you were to look at my family prior to Granny Doolin and post-Granny Doolin, you would think there has been a miracle that took place. And that miracle was in one stubborn woman whose kids were not going to be like the rest of her fa- their family. An entire family changed by one person. You don't know the impact that that one person can have on the world around them. What Jesus has done for you he can do for others. And when He does that for others, it spreads to others around them. If what we do matters, if what we do is important, then let's invite others to join with us. Because it will matter to them. It will be important to them. And it will help them. Let's stand.